the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, danproftshow.com, podcast of the program, and on social media at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft. And... As we uh, come to the TV holes on the uh, final round, who better to bring it home than the Golden Bear? Jack Nicholas weighing in on the presidential election, um, and not just saying, I voted for Trump, uh, offering a real commentary, thoughtful commentary, posting on Twitter the following, Through the years, I've been blessed to personally know several presidents on both sides of the aisle. All were good people. All loved their country. And all believed in the American dream. I had the privilege over the last three and a half years to get to know our current president a little more as his term has progressed. I've been very disappointed at what he's had to put up with from many directions. But with that, I have seen a resolve and a determination to do the right thing for our country. He has delivered on his promises. He has worked for the average person. In my opinion, he has been more diverse than any president I have seen and has tried to help people from all walks of life equally. I'm just a guy from Ohio and a Midwestern middle-class family whose grandfathers both worked on the railroad. They gave their son, my father, the opportunity to pursue his education and his American dream. I was taught strong family values and worked hard to pursue my own dreams, my own American dream. I also believe that Donald Trump's policies will bring the American dream to many families across the nation who are still trying to achieve it. You know, like Ricky Fowler's as he still searches for his first major. That's my parenthetical remark. Back to Nicholas. You might not like the way our president says or tweets some things, and trust me, I've told him that. But I have learned to look past that and focus on what he's tried to accomplish. This is not a personality contest. It's about patriotism, policies, and the people they impact. His love for America and its citizens, putting our country first, has come through loud and clear. How he has said it has not been important to me. What has been important are his actions. Now you have the opportunity to take action. I know we're only a few days from November 3rd and Election Day, but I'm certain many of you have not yet made your up your made up your minds. But if we want to continue to have the opportunity to pursue the American dream and not evolve into a socialist America and have the government run your life, then I strongly recommend you consider Donald J. Trump for another four years. I certainly have and have already cast my vote for him. Jack Nicholas. How about it? Like that, you know, you place a. Uh, celebrity type endorsements in a certain category but the quality of the endorsement matters it's pretty good quality there from the golden bear wouldn't you say and lest we forget um 80 year old jack nicholas and his wife covid infected earlier this year both survived thankfully obviously that's good news something he said there too um trump working for the average guy i wanted to pick up upon steve hilton has a commentary in the sun about this too uh, rich Americans can afford to vote for Joe Biden, but if you're poor, it'll be Trump. And uh, it really speaks to the changeover in the composition of the coalition for the 
Republican Party versus Democrat socialists uh, over the last several cycles. Uh, but it was moving in this direction. But uh, it really hastened in pace under President Trump. And he really consummated the move from uh, of you know trade unionists and other blue collar families who had been sort of culturally Democrat, their formal departure from the Democrat Party in 2016 to vote for Trump. Uh, and they're sticking with them. And now my hope is, at least, that he's doing the same with uh, minority constituencies as well, like Latinos and Asians, Asian-Americans, as well as uh, black Americans, that uh, it's not going to happen overnight. But uh, it's a steady walk away, to borrow the word of the cycle. And uh, to see him increase his percentages, I just continue to repeat this, the, 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 the greatest karmic justice would be President Trump being put over the top in the swing states and thus to his reelection, thanks to black and Latino voters in those swing states. Uh, something else, too, just the the the, the speaks to the uh, enthusiasm advantage that Trump has and among average Americans that Jack Nicholas referenced. Byron York writing the Washington Examiner. This is interesting. Each day, about a thousand people visit Trump House in Latrobe, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, of course. Uh, Latrobe Brewery, the makers of Rolling Rock. That's correct. The Trump House, it's really a house. It's a formal rental property painted like a giant American flag transformed by its owner, Leslie Rossi, into a center where Trump supporters gather, pick up a free Trump hat or shirt or flag, pose in front of the 14-foot-high cutout of President Trump in the front yard. But York goes on to write, more importantly, it's a place where Trump supporters meet others who share their political views. It's a place where people who have never voted can find the necessary papers to register. It's a place where registered Democrats who want to change to the Republican Party can get it done. And now it's become an important indicator of the intensity of Trump support and perhaps the most important battleground state in the 2020 election. It's certainly tracking to be that way, Pennsylvania, as York writes. And uh, that, that, that to me is really the fascinating thing about this. It's one thing to generate huge crowds for uh, orchestrated campaign events that there's marketing behind and and the campaign infrastructure to get the word out. Even though that's still fairly unusual, even incumbent presidents, I mean, you'd be hard pressed, especially for a second term after the initial uh, sort of star power fades a bit, as it did for Obama from 08 to 12. Hard pressed to remember these sorts of crowds for any president or presidential candidate, particularly a president running for a second term. But, um, you know, in addition to that is the organic events. I, I keep going back to this because it's remarkable. The organic boat boat parades by air, by land, by sea uh, car parades uh, that uh, have no speakers or no speakers of any particular profile. And they're just organized by average people to express their support for Trump and frankly, their protestations of the elites that uh, have treated them poorly and uh, they ex- and, and, and treated now Trump poorly. And by extension, they feel continue to treat them poorly and they don't want to go back to being treated poorly by the elites with no Trump in between. It really is something. And I, I say again, I think that enthusiasm advantage that Trump has ultimately is determinative in his reelection. Uh, wanted to get to this commentary as well. Uh, Always worth uh, checking out what Dan Henninger over at The Wall Street Journal has to say. 
his piece, Vote for Joe Biden? Seriously? (laughs) He uh, starts by reminding us how we got here and how Joe Biden got here. And Joe Biden got here because of Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, turning that race around when uh, Bernie was on the cusp of delivering a knockout blow. But uh, the idea that this was... uh, uh, a retreat by Democrat socialists from socialism and the Bernie, the Bolshevik Bernie agenda. Well, that's not true. This is key. Almost immediately after he had secured the primary victory, Mr. Biden and the party came his way to do business with Bernie, his surrogates, his base and his agenda. Donald Trump has said the Democrats stiff Bernie. No, they didn't. Joe Biden is Bernie in sheep's clothing. Joe Biden is Bernie in sheep's clothing. And throughout the show today, we'll go through some of the policy areas from health insurance to energy policy. And you tell me if Dan Henninger is wrong after hearing from some of our guests. Henninger continues standing up Mr. Biden's smiley face rather than Bernie's scowl to run against the persistent national fatigue with the pandemic shutdowns. And Mr. Trump's self-promotion was a shrewd call by the Democrats' bloodless establishment. But then May 25th happened. And, of course, he's referring to the um, killing of George Floyd and the rioting and looting and destruction of America's cities that ensued. An ideological movement that emerged in January 2017 as the anti-Trump resistance, writes Henninger, ended up in the streets as a grim mass insurrection Amid shattered glass, burning buildings and toppled or defaced monuments to George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Tutored in anti-capitalist pieties, younger Democrats convinced themselves the local shop owner was as guilty as the statue in the town square. Mm. So as to uh, Biden's unity flim flammery. Henninger writes, Mr. Biden's promise to America's voters is that he will heal the country's divisions. He won't. What has come into plain view the past year is the Democrat Party, despite its liberal traditions, has allowed itself to descend into a deeply pessimistic view of America. For all his flailing about, Donald Trump, by comparison, looks like the optimist. Unless we forget the dark winter Joe Biden referenced just a week ago in the final debate. Henninger's summation. Voters still ask, how has it come to this? A choice between the devil or the deep blue sea? The deep blue sea has always scared me. Hmm. Joe Biden is Bernie in sheep's clothing. This is Dan Brock. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Talking about uh, Mr. Bobolinsky as uh, we uh, broke down his interview with Tucker Carlson on yesterday's program. But uh, there is uh, much more to discuss Of course, the D.C. press corps has dutifully ignored all the things that Bobolinsky revealed, backed up by text messages, backed up by documentation. We know, frankly, it's backed up by investigations. 
Federal investigators obtained a FISA warrant against one of Hunter Biden's Chinese business associates. That would be Patrick Ho, who Hunter Biden refers to as the Chinese spy master. This is back in um, February of 2018. Patrick Ho was ultimately convicted of money laundering charges. He was imprisoned here and uh, before he was deported back to Hong Kong. The charge, technically, conspiracy to violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which Hunter Biden talks about in that audio that was released the other day we played yesterday with respect to what's happening in China. He's trying to protect his one income source at the time. That would be Burisma in Ukraine. And he also, in other commentary, doesn't want to be subject to FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act. He doesn't want to have to register as a foreign agent. I have another New York Times reporter calling about my representation of the literally Dr. Patrick Ko, the f-ing spy chief of China, who started the company that my partner, who was worth $323 billion, found it, and is now missing. The richest man in the world is missing, who was my partner. He was missing since I last saw him in his $58 million apartment and signed a $4 billion deal to be, build the f-ing largest f-ing LNG port in the world. And I am receiving calls from the Southern District of New York, from the U.S. Attorney himself. My best friend in business, Devin, has named me as a witness without telling me. In a criminal case, and my father, without telling me. So this is Eric, is Eric Schwerin, who is the Rosemont Seneca Partners president. Rosemont Seneca is the private equity concern that was stood up to take a billion and a half dollars from Chinese communists. Devin is Devin Archer, who is a partner in that operation as well. The important thing here is to get beyond Hunter Biden and to connect it to Joe Biden if there is a connection to be made. And we're not making the connection. Hunter Biden is. That was the same case with respect to Mr. Bobolinsky, Tony Bobolinsky, as he detailed extensively on Tucker. It was Joe Biden's involvement, including in the China energy deal. And it was Hunter Biden's own words about Joe Biden's involvement in his business dealings, not limited to the Chinese energy deal. Just a refresher here. Text from Hunter Biden that Bobolinsky turned over in which Hunter Biden refers to his father as my chairman when it comes to my business dealings overseas. Here you have Rob Walker responding to you. Clearly, there's some confusion over this. And he's saying, I'm going to put this on the screen now. When he said, when Hunter Biden said his chairman... He was talking about his dad. Correct. There's two chairmen in the story. There's Chairman Yi. Yes. In that text from Hunter Biden, he was not talking about the chairman of CFC. And what Hunter's referencing there is he spoke with his father, and his father is giving an emphatic no to the ask that I had, which was putting proper governance in place around Oneida Holdings. Tucker, I want to be very careful in front of the American people. That is not me writing that. That is not me claiming that. That is Hunter Biden writing on his own phone, typing in that I spoke with my chairman referencing his father. If the world thinks that that my chairman is not his father, then Hunter Biden would come forward and go on record and state to the world. But you have the Biden family representatives, Rob Walker, saying right here, May 19th. No. When he said his chairman, he was talking about his dad. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And continuing on with the China energy deal and Oneida, by the way, the. LLC that was being set up to do this deal with the Chinese communist backed Chinese energy company, CEFC. 
And so Bobolinsky goes to his meeting in L.A. with Joe Biden and describes it thusly. Joe came through the lobby with his security and Hunter um, basically said, hey, give me a second. I'll go over and give me 10 minutes to brief my dad uh, and read him in on things. And so then Hunter and his father and security came through the bar. And uh, obviously I stood up out of respect to shake his hand. And uh, Hunter introduced me as uh, this is Tony, dad, uh, the individual I told you about that's helping us with the business that we're working on and the Chinese. So Joe Biden knew. This is, the, this is the guy I told you about helping us with the business deal, helping us with the Chinese. While Joe Biden is the point person for Chinese policy for the administration as the vice president of the United States. And uh, Pawlinski later goes on to make this point about the 10 percent equity stake for the big guy in the new company they're creating with the Chinese communist-backed energy company. And he notes in the public filings as to that company and the distribution of ownership that the players were asked what they want their stake to be. Initially, it was you know, 10% here, 10% there, and then set aside 10% for the big guy. Well, who's the big guy? Joe Biden. It's proven up, or at least it prompts an obvious question, when the filings themselves, which are, again, publicly available and also provided by Bobolinsky, have Jim Biden, Joe Biden's brother, going from a 10% equity stake initially when they were communicating about their respective shares to a 20% an equity stake when they actually file the relevant paperwork. So why would the other partners bump Jim Biden's equity stake from the 10 percent initially requested to the 20 percent? And then there's no other person. There's no other big guy there because all the other individuals with equity stakes are named in the filings. It's obvious that Jim Biden was going to be a pass through for Joe Biden's 10 percent equity stake. And to the extent that Joe Biden wants to deny that, fine, deny it and explain it. But in order for him to do that, he needs to be asked about it. And that's where we can't seem to get to. And then, of course, this uh, recounting of how the Bidens view their involvement with all of these foreign actors, including enemies of America, with Joe Biden being in such a high profile position, the family being such a high profile family in American politics. The Biden family, like, how are they doing this? I know Joe decided not to run in 2016, but what if he ran in the future? Aren't they taking political risk or headline risk? And I remember looking at Jim Biden and saying, how are you guys getting away with this? Like, aren't you concerned? And he sort of looked at me and he laughed a little bit and said, uh, plausible deniability. He said that out loud? Uh, Yes, he said it directly to me, one-on-one in a cabana at the Peninsula Hotel after about a you know, hour and a half, two hour meeting with me asking out of concern, how are you guys doing this? Aren't you concerned that you're going to put your brother's, you know, future presidential campaign at risk? Um, You know, the Chinese, the stuff that you guys have been doing already in 2015 and 2016 around the world. And uh, I just can almost picture his face where he sort of chuckles and says, you know, plausible deniability. And again, the top line takeaway is not about Hunter Biden. It is about Joe Biden And these questions that should be put to him because of assertions that he leveraged his public office for private enrichment, both individually as well as familially. And as a potential president of the United States, will he be compromised by his either past or current financial interests with the Chinese? And frankly, by extension to CFC's play for an equity stake in the Russian state-owned energy company, the Russians as well. When we come back, we'll uh, break this down further and get reaction from former assistant director of the FBI, Kevin Brock. This is the world we live in. 
of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're now pleased to be joined by the former assistant director of the FBI and uh, principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center. He is Kevin Brock. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks. So um, I don't know what the FBI is or isn't doing here. They, they apparently began a money laundering op, uh, investigation last year that included interest in Hunter Biden's laptop, at least one of them. But uh, what should they be doing in, in light of all this information? So let's go back to the FBI's possible interest in that. We know that when the laptop was turned over by the Delaware Computer Repair Shop to the FBI under subpoena, they received a receipt that was labeled with what's called a 272D case out of Baltimore, which is a money laundering case where the substantive activity that's being laundered, you know, driving that laundering is unknown. Now, it's an interesting classification for a laptop. You know, why is this a money laundering case? My sense is the FBI knew they possibly had something here, but they weren't quite sure what it was. We don't know how the case was opened or whom it was opened against, but this laptop got associated with that case. So it tells you there's some criminal money laundering investigation out there that they're attaching this whole episode to. We'll find out more details as we go along. A corruption case against a politician relies on a lot of different federal statutes, you know, anti-bribery, extortion, those types of underlying crimes. Traditionally, it's very difficult to prove an actual corruption case against a sitting politician. In this case, they would be focused on the activities possibly of Joe Biden while he was the vice president of the United States. However, what it, it does expose, and I think what the Bobolinsky interview exposes, is a more traditional type of pervasive corruption that's not always chargeable, unfortunately. And that is where politicians use family members to accrue wealth. And they have cutouts, they have wives that are acting on their behalf, using that politician's influence and name to position themselves for business where the politician yeah. can... I understand. Be paid off later. I understand that, but you have this other dynamic, which is that everybody around Hunter Biden has been prosecuted, or a lot of people around him, not Bobolinsky, and 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 Hunter Biden skates all the way around. And, and by the way, Hunter Biden doesn't come across as a master criminal or somebody who's particularly fastidious when it comes to his business dealings. So it's it's sort of curious that those other individuals are falling and Hunter Biden's still standing. We all are left with that head-scratching impression of Hunter Biden. My working theory is that it's not that Joe Biden was involved in Hunter Biden's business dealings. It's that Joe Biden was directing. He was the man behind the scenes telling his son, I want you to set up X, Y, and Z. I'll get you the meetings that you need to get, and this is how we're going to go to town. Now, if all of this was happening after Joe Biden was vice president and no longer in office, that's fine, although it's apparent that Joe Biden doesn't want that to be discoverable because of his future, his current political aspirations. If it began to be set up while Joe Biden was still vice president, and it appears that that's the case where these meetings started taking place while Joe Biden was vice president and Hunter Biden's flying on Air Force Two and that type. That's a whole different story of influence peddling. So while it may be difficult for the FBI to tie actual money flow to directly to Joe Biden, my hope is that they're taking a hard look at how the Biden family was using his influence as the vice president. I got to tell you, yesterday's press conference with DOJ and FBI, where they announced the charging of eight people 
with conspiring to work on behalf of the Chinese government to harass, stalk, intimidate Chinese nationals living in the United States to return home. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all well and good. That That's fine. It's what the FBI is not doing. You know, Christopher Wray is perhaps less infuriating than Jim Comey because he's not such a demagogue in public. But in terms of his actual performance and what the FBI has or hasn't done on some of these matters over the last, uh, well, since during under his tenure, I got to say I'm left wanting to say the least. I think there's a fair argument to be made that the FBI could be more aggressive in turning over records and that type of thing, uh, particularly surrounding the whole Russia collusion investigation that was a ridiculous investigation based on nothing. Christopher Wray should be protecting the FBI and pushing that information out so that that can all be cleaned up. As far as I know, the Trump administration is placing some pressure on the FBI to talk about any investigation that might be undergoing right now concerning this laptop episode. I will defend the FBI on that and Christopher Wray that this is not the time so close to an election to make any type of pronouncements on incomplete investigations. This is what happened in 2016. James Comey stuck his nose into the presidential election, and you can't argue then that it was wrong and argue now that it's right. So I I think there's some prudence attached to the FBI not divulging that type of information, but it's my fervent hope that they are looking at it. He is Kevin Brock. He is the former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI, principal deputy director for the National Counterterrorism Center as well. Uh, Kevin, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Great talking. Take care. back to the show, moving from uh, a discussion, at least in part, with respect to the Bidening story of the performance of the D.C. press corps. We'll talk more about that with uh, John Daniel Davidson from The Federalist next hour. But uh, moving to uh, big tech and uh, big tech CEOs on the Hill testifying before the Senate again yesterday. Jack Dorsey, uh, who apparently is a long-lost member of ZZ Top, and I think it was nice of Senator Cruz and Senate Republicans to bring him in from the forest in which he was apparently living. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, of course, and Sundar Pinchai of Google. Uh, This started off with uh, fireworks. Ted Cruz going right at Dorsey, who was really the focus of the uh, pushback against big tech's behavior because of the disparate treatment of the New York Times story on Trump's tax returns versus the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop and emails and the like. Ted Cruz uh, sort of laid the foundation for subsequent questioning right out of the gate. Because of the three players before us, I think Twitter's conduct has by far been the most egregious. Mr. Dorsey, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections? No, we are one part of a spectrum of communication channels that people have. So you're testifying to this committee right now that that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections? People people have choice of other communication channels with which... Not if, not if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything? 
uh, well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform. All right, Mr. Dorsey, I find your opening questions, your opening answers absurd on their face. I actually find them hilarious. It was, uh, I wish uh, Cruz would have remembered, because it was tantamount to the uh, tobacco CEOs back in the day when they were all whistled before Congress and asked whether or not they believe nicotine is addictive. And to a man, they said, no, they don't believe nicotine is addictive. (laughs) And Jack Dorsey, no, I don't think Twitter has any influence on public opinion and by extension, the uh, election. Uh, Okay. All right. Sure, Jack. Well, now let's get to the uh, issue at hand, which is the disparate treatment under your own terms of service of the New York Post versus the New York Times. Did Twitter block the distribution of the New York Times story a few weeks ago that purported to be based on copies of President Trump's tax returns? We didn't find that a violation of our terms of service and this policy in particular because it was reporting about the material. It wasn't distributing the material. Okay, well, that's actually not true. They, they posted what they purported to be original source materials, and federal law, federal statute makes it a crime, a federal felony, to distribute someone's tax returns against their knowledge. So that material was based on something that was distributed in violation of federal law, and yet Twitter gleefully allowed people to circulate that. But when the article was critical of Joe Biden, Twitter engaged in rampant uh, censorship and silencing. And again, we recognized errors in that policy. We we changed it within 24 hours. This is this. But is you're still the- blocking the New York Post. You haven't changed it. We have changed it. They can log into their account, delete the original tweet. Uh, that was you forced the Politico reporter to take down his post about the New York Post as well. Is that correct? Within that 24-hour period, yes. But we, you know, as the policy has changed. Anyone can tweet. So Twitter takes the view. You can censor the New York Post. You can censor Politico. Presumably you can censor the New York Times or any other media outlet. And uh, of course, that led up to this question from Ted Cruz to the barely comatose Jack Dorsey. Mr. Dorsey, who the hell elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? And why do you persist in behaving as a Democratic super PAC? silencing views to the contrary of your political beliefs. Let, let's give uh, Mr. Dorsey uh, uh, a few seconds to answer that, and uh, then we'll have to conclude this this uh, segment. Mr. Well, we're, we're not doing that, uh, and this is why I opened um, this hearing with calls for more transparency. We realize we need to earn trust more. We realize that more accountability is needed to show our intentions and to show the outcomes. Thank you, um, Senator. So I, I hear the concerns and acknowledge them, but, but we want to fix it with. But they're not really that interesting to me is what he's really saying. And uh, the hypocrisy abounds. Right. Uh, Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker pointed out Twitter took two months to add a warning label to Chinese propaganda, suggesting the U.S. military brought brought the coronavirus to China. Right. Uh, Senators Cory Booker and Rick Scott uh, made note that uh, Twitter has been fine to let the musings of the Iranian Ayatollah of uh, the Venezuelan dictator Maduro be presented and disseminated into the arena without consequence. Compare that to the treatment of some of Trump's tweets. Interesting. And um, Mike Lee tried to get both Dorsey and Zuckerberg on the record, you know, just top of mind, because they're examples of uh, this sort of uh, unequal treatment. 
you know, the, the, the application of terms of service in some places and not other places, despite uh, very similar circumstances. Just give us an example where it's been a person or an organization of the left lead a Zuckerberg. Can you name for me one high profile person or entity from a liberal ideology who you have censored and, and what particular action you took? Uh, Senator, I can get you a, a, a list of some more of this, but there are certainly many examples that your, your Democratic colleagues um, object to when when um, you know, a fact checker might label something as false that they disagree with or um, they're yeah, not able yeah, to, I, I, to. I get that. I, I get that. I just want to be clear. I'm, I'm just asking you if you can name for me uh, uh, one high-profile liberal person or company who you've censored. I understand that the, the, uh, you're saying that there are complaints on both sides, but I just I just want one name of one person or one entity. Senator, I need to I need to think about it. And yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Uh, and, and of course, uh, on the left. Uh, they don't believe that uh, the Republicans should be allowed to speak at all because, as Tammy Duckworth said, uh, there's no both sides when one side has chosen to reject truth. So if you disagree with Tammy Duckworth, the Democrat socialist, you're rejecting truth. You, Your opinion should not be heard. There's no uh, basis for your opinion to be heard. Missouri Senator Josh Hawley went out with Tucker Carlson last night to uh, memorialize the day that was with the big tech CEO saying this. Well, you know, if you want to know what it's like to live uh, in an aristocracy, I mean, just open your eyes. This is it. I mean, we're one tiny group of, in Jack Dorsey's case, really weird people control what we're allowed to say, what we're allowed to share, what we're who's allowed to report on what. I mean, it's just absolutely ludicrous. It really is modern day aristocracy, and it's going to continue until Congress stops it, which is why Congress has got to act and do it now. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and um, talking about big tech and uh, getting woke and going broke. Obviously, that hasn't happened with big tech. We talked a little bit earlier in the week about a couple other companies, Tampax, number one. I don't even want to revisit that. But Expensify, number two, the CEO of Expensify, sending out a missive to not Expensify employees, to all 10 million Expensify customers. The letter from the CEO of Expensify was basically you have to vote for Joe Biden. A vote for anything other than Joe Biden is a vote against democracy and we need democracy to survive and so on and so forth. Well, he's generated at least one response. I don't know that this means that Expensify is going to go broke, but it's nice to see somebody respond on point. Daniel Rothschild is the executive director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. So free market and orientation, but not partisan. This is Daniel Rothschild's letter. I'm writing about the unsolicited email you sent to Many of my colleagues and I gather millions more users around the globe. Let me start by saying I have no objection to you having strong feelings about politics. My feelings on politics aren't as strong as yours, but I do have strong feelings about another matter, trust. For a variety of reasons, America is becoming a low-trust society. Conspiracy theories abound. Relationships are breaking down on partisan lines. And the institutions that are critical to a free and open society are being undermined in many cases by their own actions that destroy trust. Your email contributes to this breakdown in social trust. Uh, we selected Expensify as a vendor based on trust. After all, you have financial information for us organizationally, as well as the personal information 
of hundreds of my colleagues. You also have our email addresses. We trusted you with our private information. You have violated that trust. I also have strong feelings about another matter of public interest, the politicization of everything. A healthy society cannot exist if its political tribalism invades every aspect of commercial, civic, and community life. Team Red and Team Blue have gone from being who we vote for to, in many cases, lifestyle determinants. That is unhealthy to our civic fabric. And again, your email has exacerbated this. Until last night, I saw Expensify as a pioneering company that made my life a lot easier. Now I see Expensify as a Team Blue company. To be clear, I'm not writing this as a member of Team Red. I'm not on that team. I'm not on any team. Millions of Americans are in the same boat. Frankly, we're sick and tired of partisans on both sides telling us that we need to ally ourselves with one team or another. And if I may be more blunt, we're especially tired of being told this by people who have built an app or look good on camera. You have no special insights on public policy or politics. And the fact that you think we need to have your opinions placed in our inboxes is vain and narcissistic. Uh, I like that. I like the the angle that Rothschild takes, the two angles. One is the uh, violation of trust, and two is the larger cultural commentary about politics consuming all aspects of our lives, which is unhealthy and dangerous for a free society. So rather than getting into Trump versus Biden on the merits, uh, the uh, relationship that Expensify had with a customer like the Mercatus Center and the relationship that now has been damaged, maybe irreparably, because of the Expensify CEO's breaking of the trust between provider and client. Hmm. I hope other letters along the lines of Rothschild's pour in that maybe gets uh, the CEO of Expensify to think a second time to borrow Dennis Pragerism as uh, opposed to what he was trying to do, which would be ironic considering what he was trying to do with uh, those who are leaning to voting for Trump. This is Dan Proctor. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Have you seen the plot against the president yet? You should. This is uh, the uh, new documentary by Amanda Milius, who is the daughter of the great Hollywood screenwriter and director John Milius. By the way, there's an excellent documentary on John Milius that is also uh, available on Amazon that you should see. It. So uh, talking about Hollywood royalty here, even though I think based on their political perspectives, they're not treated like Hollywood royalty. Here's the trailer. But you can make a whole movie on the Russiagate hoax. It's all documented. There was an illusion being created using the most awesome tools and the greatest tricks that the American intelligence community had learned to use against our enemies. Now it was being deployed against the American people and our president. This is the biggest political scandal in modern history, which makes Watergate look like a, a tiff. A political dirty trick is being carried out by our intelligence community. Honestly, none of us really know sort of holistically what to think about this dossier. They went into Congress. They said, there's nothing here. Doesn't matter. We'll keep going with FISA. We'll keep going with the investigation. And more importantly, we will go on TV day in and day out and lie to the American people to their face. And nothing's going to happen to us. The nation and all of our freedoms hang by a thread. And the military apparatus of this country is about to be handed over to scum 
were beholden to scum, Russian scum. We had not one person claim that they had or had seen evidence of Trump colluding with the Russians. Devin Nunes was the hero in the forest. He was alone. He was mocked. He was attacked. Devin Nunes was subject to such scorn for saying the conclusions that we brought forth in that report, which all proved to be true. Devin Nunes comes off very well as uh, his long overdue. Adam Schiff comes off exactly how he actually is. And really sober analysis from very good reporters who were on this from the beginning, like John Solomon, our friend over at JustTheNews.com. You know, this is an example of what we talk about with Andrew Clavin all the time. Uh, We need to have work product in these entertainment spaces so as to get the truth out around the institutional blocks that exist for people who don't submit to the leftist orthodoxy. And this is a great offering in that vein. Please be joined now by Amanda Milius, director of the plot against the president, former member of the Trump administration about the State Department and the White House. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on the film. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I think uh, the, the way that you broke it out with help from, as I mentioned, the likes of Devin Nunez provides an easy to follow sort of linear progression to what did happen over the last three and a half years. And it's it's sort of um, remarkable because I was sort of left with good grief. You had sort of a Mr. Smith goes against the deep state with Devin Nunez. And but for Devin Nunez, are we even at this place as frustrating as the place is with the lack of accountability in the upper reaches of some of these agencies? Are we even at a place where we have any idea what happened without, number one, Trump's victory, but number two, Devin Nunez's uh, pursuit of the truth? I don't think so. I think that Lee Smith, who wrote the book that the documentary is based on, says frequently, if it was not for Devin Nunes and his team, nobody would have known what really happened. Certainly, I think if the president hadn't won in 2016, that was always the plan. I think that we would certainly have never known the extent of the crimes, and none of this would have been uncovered. Yeah, that's a, that was a really interesting case study. This is an important point. So what happens after he wins, and now they have to sort of paper over what they did. So one is getting Flynn out of the way, because as a former DNI under Obama, he knew too much. And then secondly, Jim Comey, when Jim Comey is taken out of the way by Trump, ultimately, now they have to do some backfilling of the role that Jim Comey was playing. So explain how that played out. Yeah, it's it's interesting because actually when you take this 30,000 foot view and you step back, I mean, a lot of people look at this and they're like, well, I think I know what happened in Russia. Again. I've been watching the news like I don't need to see this. And really you do because you can't see the chess moves, you know, a move by the administration and then a move by the counterforce. You don't really see the strategy behind that until you see it all together in a overhead view. And clearly, it really activated them when the president fired Comey because he was their last guy on the inside who could, you know, getting rid of Flynn was step one, but step two was making sure that Comey was able to hide their crimes and basically create a distraction by this whole Russia thing, which is a complete hoax, to distract from that. And then when they lost him trying to put Mueller in, that was something that I didn't really understand that relationship until I had made the film and did the interviews, was, was that he was selected for a very specific reason. Mueller was not an accident. Mueller was not, you know, and I, a lot of people talk about his history with Comey, but it's, it's really very interesting when you look at the timing of when Mueller had initially gone in for his interview to be FBI director was the president said, thanks, but no thanks. 24 hours later, he's appointed 
as the special counsel. That's such a key point. And it, and so so they so the play is, OK, uh, backfill our guy, Bob, as FBI, uh, since Jim Comey's gone. And then when that doesn't work out, now we go to our guy, Rod, to get Mueller appointed yeah. the special prosecutor. Yeah. I mean, it's just one after another after another. And I think if I hadn't worked in D.C. as an outsider perspective, outsider person, I had no intention of ever working in the government in my life. I happened to have volunteered for the Trump campaign when uh, in 2016, and then I, I got hired. And uh, I think seeing the way D.C. works from a perspective of a not political, non-D.C. person, but I really believe that that is how they operate, because I saw it up close, and it's really, really unbelievable. I mean, the corruption is so widespread. It doesn't surprise me that there were that many bad actors. Let's just put it that way. Is is there an ability to even figure out where the uh, impulses for the careerists to protect each other ends and the ideological opposition to the president begins, or does it just all run together? It's sort of almost, in a sense, a natural progression of our system that needs to be checked. Because if we basically say that we change administrations every four to eight years, these institutions are here for much longer than that. And so the reason they become loyal to the institutions over in, in, instead of to the administrations that they are supposed to be taking you know, direction from is because, I mean, self-preservation and, and it's, it's just a natural organic growth that needs to be checked. And I think it's something that at this point has gone to emergency levels, the uh, loyalty to the institutions versus to the country and to um, the presidency and the executive. Well, and, and the, the, the other piece of this, right, it, this doesn't happen without Devin Nunez's initiative uh, and uh, his willingness to endure all the ridicule and, and worse. It also doesn't happen without sort of alternative news outlets outside of the established D.C. press corps. <laughs> like uh, John Solomon and what he was reporting for The Hill before he started JustTheNews.com and Kim Strassel at The Wall Street Journal and then and filmmakers like yourself now. It, it, this doesn't get out without um, people picking up what somebody like a Devin Nunez and other uh, House Republicans were doing, uh, trying to put the pieces together for the public. No, absolutely. And I think that's very clear. It's one of the reasons that I included some of the lesser known, more kind of unusual social media figures in the film. I've had a couple of people, you know, ask me about that. And it's because they got it right. If it wasn't for social media and journalists like the ones that you mentioned, absolutely, we would not know that this happened. And also, if it were not for the complicity of the mainstream media, this operation would not have succeeded because the intelligence agencies and the FBI can do all the kinds of corrupt activities that they want, but it wouldn't have duped the entire country into thinking that there was some connection between the Trump administration, the Trump campaign and Russia had the mainstream media not beat that into people's heads every day for three years uh, and, and for four years. So there, as much as, yeah, it's, it's, if we didn't have these independent sources and journalists and, and, and folks who were saying the truth, we wouldn't know what had happened. But in, in, it's like on the alternative, I mean, it's, it's the mainstream media is just as complicit as these corrupt agencies. And uh, what was your dad's review of your movie? He's actually very excited about it because he's retired at this point mm -hmm. and he's very on top of the news. He doesn't miss an episode of Hannity Tucker. He's very interested in this. When I was working in uh, D.C. and I would come home, he'd always want the inside scoop. He'd be like, what's happening with this? So he's he's totally excited about it and he really likes it. So 
That's right. good. Well, all right. So do so. Everybody do a Milius Film Festival this weekend. Uh, go go watch Milius, which is the documentary on Amanda's dad, John, a Hollywood legend, and then watch a plot against the president. Amanda's film about uh, Devin Nunez playing his uh, Mr. Smith goes up against the deep state uh, role and and everything that transpired. And and you know, basically, if, if Trump wins a second term and the German investigation finally is completed, then you'll have a, a ready-made sequel for this, uh, Amanda. Yes, I hope so. I mean, for the sake of the country. Uh... I really hope I, I nobody really knows how this story is going to end. Um, so I, I certainly hope that um, that there's that that some kind of justice happens, because really, if you if you let people get away with this, they won't stop doing it. And um, people do what they can get away with, especially these agencies. Amanda Millius, director of The Plot Against the President, former member of the Trump administration, both at the State Department and the White House. Again, the film is on all those outlets that uh, Amanda mentioned, starting with Amazon Prime for easy use. Amanda Milius, thanks so much for joining us. Continued success with the film. Thank you so much. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Moving from uh, the plot against the president and our discussion with Amanda Milius to now the plot against America's energy sector in the discussion of uh, what Joe Biden has uh, proposed as memorialized on his uh, website, his platform, uh, combined with what he said uh, in the final debate a week ago Thursday, a week ago uh, today. Would you rule out banning fracking? I do rule out banning fracking because the answer we need, we need other industries to transition to get to ultimately a complete zero emissions by 2025. What I will do with fracking over time is make sure that we can capture the emissions from the fracking, capture the emissions from gas. We can do that and we can do that by investing money and doing it. But it's a transition to that. Uh-huh. So I'm not for banning fracking. I'm for eliminating fracking or transitioning away from fracking. Oh, by the way, I'll throw in the oil industry as well. Well, the implications of what Joe Biden said about energy policy last week's debate, something that President Trump has picked up on and uh, featured in his rallies the past week. Uh, Joe Biden, what he said, in the primary versus Joe Biden, what he said on that debate stage. But even more importantly, just Joe Biden, what he said on that debate stage and the implications in a lot of battleground states that are natural gas and oil oriented in terms of their economies. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Rebecca Mansur, senior editor at large for Breitbart News. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Wonderful to join you, Dan, and to speak about this very important issue and the implications of that policy of uh, basically eliminating an industry that accounts for about $1.3 trillion worth of uh, economic input into this country. I mean, an industry that accounts for about nearly 7 or 8% of our GDP. Uh, Joe Biden wants to um, sunset that industry. Yeah, so uh, rather, rather, implications. rather dismissively, and he's on a pretty aggressive timeline, too. Not quite AOC, but 2035, 15 years to eliminate natural gas and oil industries. That is a momentous uh, metamorphosis for America, what that would mean. And, and of course, the focus has been Pennsylvania and fracking uh, much of the last week. But as you write about in at Breitbart.com, 
what uh, what Joe Biden proposes would mean for a state like Michigan. Yes, it has massive implications for Michigan. It really does have implications for every single state because every state is part of the energy infrastructure. And natural gas is hugely important to every state. It's been a, a huge benefit to the economy. Um, same thing with the oil industry. Um, and I've experienced this in California, what the implication of his policies are, because California has adopted similar green goals to transition to zero emissions and full renewable energy by 2035. And what we see in our state here is perennial rolling blackouts because, uh, you know, wind and solar are not reliable sources of energy. So much so that even our Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, recently said we have to have a backup plan in California because we were witnessing rolling blackouts last summer because there was uh, cloud cover in the desert, so the solar panels didn't work, and there was no wind for a period. And that just shows you exactly what the problem here is. What industry experts call it is they, they refer to it as dispatchability. When you have something like natural gas, it's dispatchable. You can store it in the summer months and have it available and plentifully available in the winter months. That's hugely important for a state like Michigan, which uses, you know, 75% of the homes in Michigan are heated by natural gas. Same thing in Illinois, where you're broadcasting from, Dan, and same thing in many of the states across this country. So in a state like California, when you have rolling blackouts, it's uncomfortable. You know, we can't use our air conditioning, but it's going to be catastrophic for a state that has polar vortexes and you need to heat your home, especially for a state like Michigan or any of the Rust Belt states, which are our manufacturing centers. I mean, when you have a, for a manufacturing economy, the cornerstone of a thriving manufacturing sector is uh, access to affordable and reliable energy. And what essentially Joe Biden is doing is taking our reliable fossil fuel based energy infrastructure and transitioning it to something that's totally unreliable, not proven, and, and is also vulnerable to rolling blackouts. And here's the kicker. Part of Joe Biden's energy policies is also a push for zero emission vehicles. By that, he means electric vehicles. Um, and guess what? You have to charge those vehicles. You have to plug them in someplace. And you're going to be plugging them into our still fossil fuel burning power grid. So essentially, you get zero economic benefit from all of this. It's just trading for a longer tailpipe. And on top of all of that, moving towards electric vehicles the way that Joe Biden is doing would mean wiping out millions of jobs all along the supply chain for our automotive industry because you're basically taking away the internal combustion engine which you're wiping out over 300 components underneath the hood this has massive implications for the auto sector as the auto sector is already learning because the industry is moving towards that so well, yeah. these are all things that we should be discussing and we're not and uh, yeah just uh, two points too in these uh, cold weather states like uh, the one i live in uh, the other problem is now we have to heat the outside if we want to keep our restaurants open because we have to eat outdoors. So uh, it, with governors uh, Whitmer and Pritzker with their lockdown and bus policies, you know, you got to eat outside in an igloo and they're going to need uh, a fossil fuel uh, uh, heat generation uh, for for that. On a more serious note, 
Um, to your point about the carbon footprint, uh, there was a good piece in Bloomberg just the other week. Lithium batteries, dirty secret. Manufacturing them leaves massive carbon footprint. Uh, the making of lithium-ion batteries could emit 74% more CO2 than for conventional cars. So it's just a scam, too. It's just sort of feeling your way to energy policy rather than looking at the hard data and the hard science behind it, in, in addition to, as you've done, the hard economic impacts. Exactly. I mean, and when we look at things like this push, again, towards electric vehicles, which would, as, as I said, have massive implications. And, you know, there, so many of our states have uh, assembly plants or are working in the automotive industry. There's 7 million Americans that are employed in the automotive industry in various capacities, right? So, but this push towards EV, yeah, it has real, no real environmental benefit when you look at how you're going to have to charge these things, how you have to mine for the, bat- the materials you needed to make these batteries. And we have no way yet to really effectively recycle these batteries. What are we going to have, massive landfills? We can't even safely do that. It's, it's all just smoke and mirrors, really, when you look at the environmental impact. And the reason why the auto industry is embracing electric vehicles, it has nothing to do with the environment. It has everything to do with their bottom line because, guess what, it's cheaper to make these vehicles for the automakers because you wipe out all of those components that create the internal combustion engine. Not to mention so, not to mention the subsidies like uh, Elon Musk currently enjoys. But guess what? The sticker price of these vehicles is not any cheaper for the consumers. In fact, it's more expensive. So it's a cash cow for the auto industry, for the automakers, but not necessarily for the workers, not necessarily for American consumers who don't like these or don't trust these vehicles yet. And it's not even good for the environment. Well, and, and but the, guess who it's good for? Yeah. You want to know who it's good for? China. China loves electric vehicles because they don't have our oil, oil reserves. No, they, they are totally embracing this. Yeah. Right? And, and, and they're uh, you know, while they're building coal fired plants. She is Rebecca Mansur, Senior Editor-at-Large for Breitbart News. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the show. We spoke with uh, former assistant FBI director Kevin Brock earlier in the program about this. But I just want to go back to what I think is um, perhaps the money line from Tony Bobulinski's interview with Tucker Carlson the other evening, uh, all hour long. Now, this can't be discussed without the context of supporting text messages and documentation to advance the assertion. But uh, it's all crystallized in this meeting that Bobulinski describes having with Joe Biden in L.A. on the occasion of the Milken conference at which Joe Biden was speaking. Bobulinski describes this. Joe came through the lobby with his security and Hunter um, basically said, hey, give me a second. I'll go over and give me 10 minutes to brief my dad uh, and read him in on things. And so then Hunter and his father and security came through the bar. And uh, obviously I stood up out of respect to shake his hand. And uh, Hunter introduced me as uh, this is Tony, dad, uh, the individual I told you about that's helping us with the business that we're working on and the Chinese. And it uh, implicates Joe Biden, as does other information. But it also speaks to really what the focus should be, in my opinion, in discussions and maybe even questions 
which is how can you be president of the United States, setting aside the self-dealing, setting aside the leveraging of office, uh, Clinton Inc. style for personal enrichment, how can you be president of the United States when you have past or current financial relationships with America's enemies, beginning in China? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by John Daniel Davidson. He's political editor at The Federalist, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly. John Daniel Davidson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What questions would you like asked of Joe Biden that will not be asked by anybody? Really, any questions would be better than what we have now, which is nothing, which is deafening silence from the media. A basic question that they could maybe just yell at Joe Biden as he walks by is, have you ever met Tony Bobulinski? Right. Did this meeting take place? Is he telling the truth? It's a pretty clear yes or no answer at that point. And yet what we have so far from Joe Biden are the most unbelievable and facile denials when evidence is just mounting day by day that, in fact, Joe Biden was involved in these deals. He did know about these deals. He did meet with people about these deals with this Chinese firm. And the denials, his repeated claim that it was just a smear campaign isn't good enough anymore. It shouldn't be good enough for the U.S. media. And yet the D.C. press corps position seems to be because this is unverified information, we're not going to effort to verify it because it's unverified. Their standards for what's verified and what's not and what they'll report on and what level of verification they need changes based on who the information is about. They didn't need very much verification to run with the Steele dossier and all these other phony documents that the Hillary Clinton campaign paid for to dig up fake dirt on Donald Trump during the last election cycle. Uh, But now suddenly they have all these standards about verification that they can't breathe a word about these uh, claims until they have somehow verified to their satisfaction every document that that has come forward. Uh, it's crazy. It's hypocritical. And everybody knows it. And there's some remarkable statements, including from, you know, the the academics that are enlisted to provide cover for the press, providing cover for Joe Biden. Thomas Ridd, Johns Hopkins professor of strategic studies, telling The Washington Post, we must treat the Hunter Biden leaks as if they were a foreign intelligence operation, even if they probably aren't. That's literally disinformation. That <laughs> we must disinformation. use disinformation to treat disinf- like it, information like it's disinformation. Uh, it's, you can understand why the American public gets confused. Already, the director of national intelligence has come out and said repeatedly that there's no evidence that this is disinformation. The actual intelligence agencies have confirmed this, that there's no evidence of Russian involvement. And yet you still have Adam Schiff and these other clowns out there saying, oh, this bears all the marks of Russian disinformation. How stupid do they think the American people are that we would fall for this again after four years of hearing about Russia collusion and the Mueller probe and the Steele dossier? Give me a break. It seems like they've discovered that um, actually evidence of anything runs counter to the storytelling. You know, we didn't need any evidence to make a Russian collusion case to continue to make it with respect to the Biden Inc. story. So, you know, we just paper over any evidence to the contrary that's presented by the other side, whether it be from government agencies, intelligence agencies like you're describing, or whether it be from Tony Bobulinski in terms of his business transactions. I mean, how many sources of information do they need at this point to start putting the pieces together? By the way, the intelligence agencies aside, the news media shouldn't need more than they already have to at least start asking questions. And really, the abdication of the news media on this story proves once and for all their corruption, 
uh, and their condescension toward the American people. Well, given given that, uh, the question is, should we want the D.C. press corps to actually ask any specific questions in the waning days of the campaign or not? We'll get John, Dan- John Daniel Davidson's answer to that question. He is the political editor at The Federalist. He's contributor to Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Daniel Davidson, political editor at the Federalist, contributor to the Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly, talking about the Biden Inc. coverage a scandal, questions that could be asked. But as uh, you were describing before the break, John, uh, maybe we don't want the D.C. press corps to do anything other than they're doing, which is running cover for Joe Biden, not asking any questions, because it just continues to impress upon the American public exactly what you described, that they are not trustworthy. They are in the tank. They are they're not a check on those in positions of power. They're no one to be trusted. And uh, that's just how it is. And if it weren't for the proliferation of right of center media over the past decade or so, if it weren't for outlets like the New York Post uh, and others, then there wouldn't be any reporting, any reporting on any of this. Uh, And so I I think that we're in a new place uh, when it comes to the media landscape where half the country knows that the mainstream corporate media cannot be trusted to report on politics or to hold powerful people accountable unless those people are Republicans. And the other half of the country pretends that anyone except the corporate media are just like far right trolls. So it's a bad place to be because we don't have any kind of consensus. There's no authority. There's no broad based trust in the news media writ large. And more and more Americans are siloed off. So it would be nice if the mainstream media asked Joe Biden a few serious questions about this, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Do you expect that uh, sometime between now and Tuesday, somebody will corner him, somebody will shout out a question that he chooses to answer, or or really, we're going to watch this play out over the next five days with him never answering anything related to all of the specific information that has been put into the public arena? I don't think any of the mainstream media outlets are going to ask him any serious questions or demand any answers from him. He's not going to answer any questions that are asked by any other media outlets. The press is going to continue to run cover for him as they have through this entire campaign. But I don't think that this issue is going to go away if he wins the White House. This is going to plague him because there are other media outlets out there and there's a big enough media ecosystem out there of outlets that are interested in covering this that he's not going to be able to get away with this and he's not going to be able to make it go away if he, he wins the White House. Well, and then and then you're going to have people say, well, you know, now that we got rid of Trump, now we have every incentive to actually cover the story. And if, if that means ultimately Joe Biden has to resign, well, we got Kamala Harris as the backstop. So it doesn't matter. The, the key was get rid of Trump and then we'll deal with all this stuff and then we'll handle it after the fact to sort of refurbish our reputations as people that will challenge those in power no matter who they are. And we'll just hope the public forgets that we didn't challenge them before they were in power because we wanted them in power. They have no shame, so I wouldn't put it past them. There's never any consequences for these people except over time more and more Americans 
are seeing the news media for what it is and don't trust the media. And eventually that's going to hurt them. And eventually it's going to cause them to lose readers and lose viewers and alienate completely half the country, if not more. Something else about the media, we have to include big tech in this conversation. And you had that long lost member of ZZ Top, as well as Zuckerberg and Sundar Pinchai before the Senate yesterday. And there was um, a statement made by my home state Senator Tammy Duckworth that probably won't get much coverage either. But it's uh, sort of a remarkable statement uh, when it comes to discussions of any, any sort of reform of how big tech operates. And it speaks to the media culture inside the Beltway, the prevailing media culture more generally. She writes of uh, the criticisms of varying standards depending on who is producing the content on these platforms. She said there's no both sides when one side has chosen to reject truth. So that's the new standard. We don't have to cover. We can't suppress people who disagree with us because we are the truth. They are choosing to reject the truth. So they have no standing to express themselves, be covered or push us to cover anything in particular. Yeah, exactly. That's called epistemic closure. (laughs) They have no ability to engage in rational dialogue and in reasoned debate. It's essentially a declaration that the public square is closed and that a deliberation, debate, compromise, all the things that you need for a republic to work and for democracy to work, they're done with it. If they think that you're wrong, they don't just think that you're wrong. They think you're rejecting truth. It's really a religious fervor that we see on the left, and it's dogmatic. It has all the hallmarks of religion. So a really religious person is not going to compromise on deeply held beliefs that they have. The left is not going to compromise on these quasi-religious deeply held beliefs they have. And that's how you get uh, someone like Tammy Duckworth saying, well, the other side is wrong, so therefore there's only one side. That's not the way that people talk about uh, their fellow citizens in a republic, and that's not the way that elected officials should talk. And unfortunately, that is the animating uh, ethos behind the Democratic Party right now. And, and I just uh, chuckled yesterday. The big story wasn't uh, the Biden Inc. story, wasn't the Bob Alinsky interview. The big story is that Mr. Anonymous has been revealed, the, who, the, <laughs> the, who wrote this New York Times piece, you know, the call coming from inside the administration, how those senior officials are working to stop President Trump from uh, pursuing his uh, most destructive impulses and so on and so forth. And it turns out to be this... Uh, Truly, as as I think Jim Garrity at National Review said, truly anonymous person, Miles Taylor. And I love this Couldn't one. Couldn't be more anonymous. Exactly. He was more well-known as anonymous. Miles, <laughs> this comment uh, uh, over at NRO, Miles Taylor is living Dwight Schrute's personal g- dream. He got the New York Times to describe him as a senior administration official rather than assistant to the regional manager, which is more or less what he was as a mid-level functionary with zero policymaking power. But he was... Uh, you know, the vanguard of the Republic uh, saving us from President Trump's excesses. And now he gets a second bite at the apple a few days before the campaign to remind us of his heroism and and, uh, you know, those uh, intrepid uh, individuals who were inside the Trump administration, who the media relied on to get the truth out about this guy. It couldn't be more perfect that this never Trump hero is just some nobody lying bureaucrat. He he went on CNN, uh, you know, months and months ago and was asked, point blank if he was anonymous and he said no he lied to anderson cooper uh multiple times so he's he's an, he's an, he's a lying nobody uh, a bureaucrat uh who 
the mainstream media touted before he came out as remember when, when, when the New York times piece came out and all these media talking heads say, Oh, anonymous could be Mike Pence. Anonymous could be Jim <laughs> Mattis. Anonymous could be, could be John Bolton. Right. You know? uh, no, right. It turns out it's someone no one has ever heard of who is a mid-level bureaucrat functionary, uh, who, whose, whose opinion doesn't matter at all. Uh, that's the face of never Trump. That's the face of the resistance. Great. It's actually also the face of the swamp, uh, which is the whole reason that Trump got elected in the first place. He is John Daniel Davidson, political editor for The Federalist, Federalist.com, contributor to The Wall Street Journal and Texas Monthly as well. John Daniel Davidson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take care. Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy uh, sending a letter to uh, the CEOs of the major media outlets imploring them not to report on the election outcome on Tuesday night until every polling place is closed, saying Americans will be watching their television, monitoring their social media feeds, anxiously awaiting the results of the election. And understandably, the competition within the media to be the first to deliver those results is intense. But media bragging rights should not supersede Americans' voices. Any media organization that declares a winner of the presidential election before polling centers have closed will unquestionably disenfranchise Americans who have not yet voted. Patients must take precedence over prognostication and thus asking for restraint. Good luck getting restraint from the D.C. press corps. But I understand uh, he needs to at least express the sentiment. The other reason restraint should be the order of the day is because over the Daily Signal's reporting, we still have eight states with voting lawsuits pending with Election Day just a few days away. You know, this matters in terms of the count of the Democrats gambits to extend the receipt of mail and ballots well beyond Election Day that they uh, tried in Wisconsin to no effect. The Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals telling uh, those uh, Democrats in Indiana, as long as the state allows voting in person, there is no constitutional right to vote by mail. The fact there is a pandemic is still, quote, not a good reason for the federal judiciary to assume tasks that belong to politically responsible officials. In other words, it's up to state officials, not judges, to decide what the rules are applying to voting and the receipt of absentee ballots so long it doesn't run afoul of people's constitutional rights. This is a thing that continues to seemingly mystify so many on the left that elections are mainly state and local matters. And uh, you have this going so Wisconsin and Indiana, but you still have Minnesota, federal district court of Minnesota, responding to a, a collective lawsuit from Democrats agreeing to not enforce Minnesota's statutory mandated absentee ballot receipt deadline of 8 p.m. on Election Day, November 3rd. They uh, said as long as the they wanted to do as long as the ballots were postmarked by November 3rd and received within a week, they were good. This was challenged by Republican Party presidential electors in federal court. However, the court never reached the merits of the case because it found the electors didn't have standing. So right now, that order that allows in Minnesota stands pending litigation. We uh, know that the Supreme Court declined to take up the Pennsylvania case. Uh, that would allow ballots to be up to, received up to three days after the election in what may end up being the key swing state. Three days after the election, even if they don't have a postmark showing they're being mailed by Election Day, even if there is uh, questions about signature match. But the point is that there you have all this pending litigation. 
thinking about that in terms of the impact on the outcomes. So even if and when these states are called, if there are still matters before the courts, that will potentially inform the pursuit of litigation in elections that that are close in terms of outcome for either Biden or Trump. In terms of where you may see additional litigation and the bases for that litigation, if you have anything of concern in particular jurisdictions combined with this pending litigation and how the election was actually administered and whether it was administered in consistent with effective state and local law. So it's still wild and willy, even as we stand here, uh, you know, four days plus out, just over four days out from the election. This is Dan Provenance. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, Europe is returning to uh, lockdowns, national lockdowns, at least some of the Western European nations including France, uh, UK, Germany. Uh, This is interesting. UK and France, Britain and France, have seen their seven-day average death toll from COVID-19 hit almost 200. On Tuesday, France reported 523 COVID-19 deaths, its highest daily total since April. Britain saw another 310 deaths yesterday. That's the highest daily toll since the end of May as well. And uh, in Sweden, the seven-day rolling average for coronavirus daily death, 0.6. Seven-day average in the UK and France, 200. Sweden, 0.6. And I thought the lockdowns were doing everything right. As the uh, Wall Street Journal opined, the first lockdowns were extensive and prolonged. Governments mandated masks and social distancing. The new surges are due to the insidious nature of the virus, not to policy mistakes. That's a lesson for Democrats who blame every new American affection on Donald Trump. It's also a lesson for Western European nations that maybe this heavy handed approach is uh, more destructive and no more effective than the lighter touch of Scandinavian nations like, say, Sweden. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Konstantin Eckner, writer, broadcaster, contributed to The Times, The Spectator, and Der Spiegel. Konstantin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So, um, yeah, I'm a a bit perplexed. Uh, The World Health Organization, their special envoy for COVID-19, says don't lock down. The uh, lockdowns that were initiated in the, uh, the spring into the summer that were supposed to be uh, effective in uh, flattening and slowing. Now we see a surge and we're right back to lockdown policies. This this lockdown whack-a-mole, nobody questions this in those Western European nations that are pursuing it? Oh, I believe that a lot of people are questioning the decision uh, that has been made by France and Germany to um, introduce a lockdown again. Um, I believe that the government, I mean, at least for Germany, where I am right now, um, I think the government is kind of desperate in a way, and, and they don't know what to do. I would then introduce another lockdown and introduce new restrictive measures um, to shut down as much of the public life as they can um, because of the resurgence of um, infections. I mean, I, I Germany did quite well for a while during the summer. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There were many yeah. deaths and, yeah. you know, the infection rate was really low. Um, I think what happened, um, especially in the urban areas, um, in Berlin and Munich, um, was that a lot of people got got lazy in a way? You know, they they didn't really care any, anymore. And then the, and then there was a fast, quick resurgence in in infections um, because at, at early on in the in the pandemic in Germany, mostly 
there were mostly villages and rural areas um, where the, the pandemic was really severe. And uh, Berlin and other urban areas, nothing was really going on. You know, the, the infection rates were quite low. And now everything has changed. Now you see in Berlin and in these other um, dense areas that um, there are many infections. Because people just wanted to go out again. Well, right. And yeah, yeah, I mean, see, that that sort of speaks to the point, which is to say, you know, maybe uh, a knee jerk, massive disruption of people's lives was uh, was not the way to go. Maybe uh, you could accomplish the same things that you were trying to accomplish with flattening the curve and slowing the spread with uh, incremental approaches based on the evidence of what works so that uh, people will be more inclined to be more vigilant on a go-forward basis rather than you know, locking them down and having all that pent-up energy essentially uh, present itself as it has. I guess I agree. Um, and, and you mentioned Sweden, and I think there's a little bit of a false narrative. It wasn't like Sweden did nothing. I mean, right, they did right, something. Right. But also, also, also Swe- the Swedes were really disciplined about it. You know, they, they, they had home office. They stayed at home when they could. You know, I mean, people don't have to go to parties all the time. They can, you know, slow down a little bit at least and maybe go to parties only every second Friday, <laughs> yeah. every, every other Friday and, and stuff like that. And the, the Swedes did that, right? They slowed down, but it didn't shut down. And I guess that worked. And uh, our countries they had these the radical shutdown and then people bounce back or uh, let's go out again it's summer and we want to have fun yeah right and, and i mean look as johan gasecki the former state's uh, epidemiologist for sweden said at the outset of this he said you know we'll see what happens over the course of the next year or so you know that trying to assess this in real time is very difficult but uh, his concern about the knee-jerk lockdowns was once you um, do this once you lock down and, and essentially quarantine healthy people you know how, how do you ever get out when you're talking about a contagious virus, how, how do you ever stop going back to that when you've said this is what must be done initially? And for every case surge, then there's going to be the impetus to reimpose whatever restrictions you had temporarily relaxed. And that's exactly how it's played out in Western Europe, as well as in several states in America. Yeah. And also, I think one problem um, the, the governments in France and Germany are facing now is that I think in March and, and even April and May, people accepted that there had to be measures um, to contain the spread of the virus. I mean, rightfully so. Uh, but they, they were they were accept, I know, they accepted it to an extent. But now there are more and more people just, you know, fed up with what, what's going on. They are fed up with another lockdown. Um, because let's face it, you can't impose a lockdown, a full uh, a lockdown without cooperation by the people. I yes. mean, you can't like send out pol- police forces across all streets of your country. Not 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 when your country has the size of Germany or France or the United Kingdom. That's impossible. You need people to ac- be you know to accept this kind of thing. And um, I mean, I don't think there will be riots or something, or like uh, at least not a huge riots in Germany or France. But I mean, people they get tired of it. And, yeah. Um, what, well, there is there is this the German government. Yeah, there is this concept uh, uh, in the Western world uh, that some politicians seem to have forgotten called consent of the governed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At some point, yes, you can impose your will, but I mean, not without consequence. And and, and in terms of the the uh, revolt, if you will, I mean, we're seeing it play out in, in Italy where there actually have been pretty substantial protests. But you don't see that. Necess- and, and obviously we've had uh, seen that in France before, not on this issue, but with the yellow vests. And I wonder if uh, you, you're suggesting that uh, that's unlikely to happen here with the, the lockdowns reimposed? 
I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, I think, uh, especially in Germany, and I think uh, to a smaller extent in the UK, one issue was that uh, early on, and even during the past few months, you saw that those who really were fight, fighting, quote-unquote fighting, um, the corona policies were really on, on the far right, even like beyond the far right, you know, like conspiracy theorists um, or just extreme, extreme right-wing groups. And of course, there are other people, moderate, moderate conservatives and, and liberals who don't want to be um, attached to these people. So it's also a political issue. Now, will there be another kind of protest then led by liberals? And, and, and when I talk about liberals in Germany, that's like more free market liberals, you know, moderate liberals and also conservatives um, who are then maybe uh, leading another uh, kind of different protest, a more you know, measured protest as opposed to you know, right-wing groups going out there and, and demanding that uh, Merkel gets arrested. I mean, that's that's not what I think. That's not really what uh, leads you to something. Um, I'm not sure about that. I, I guess I mean, just French people are maybe more more yeah more determined to go out on, to, uh, to the streets and uh, show their resistance. I guess the Germans are more reluctant to do so. Yeah. Okay. Well, when, uh, with respect to the, the politics of this, and to, you've opened that door, Merkel is gone next year. And so how is this influencing uh, the direction that Germany, obviously a, a key Western nation, uh, the, the, the direction Germany will take when Merkel departs the stage? As of right now, it looks like her party will remain in government and will, you know, have the next chancellor will be from her party. Um, but it, I think the main issue is that Merkel, because of some of the health issues she had over the past few years, um, I mean, rightfully so, I guess, um, detached, uh, detached herself uh, to an extent from party politics. And she saw herself only as, a, as the leader of the government and not as someone who is really involved in party politics and all, this, all these things that, that happen um, in parliament. Uh, because she uh, wanted to only lead the government. Um, but that also left her party... Um, in, in a dire state, and, um, because there's no clear-cut leader now for the German conservatives, and there's a there's a battle going on internally about uh, who should lead the party into the next general election next next year, next fall, um, and there's no clear-cut successor to Merkel. So we will see if that um, I guess that could affect the outcome of the next election. Um, it still looks like, or it's still likely that. Uh, the conservatives will remain in power um, with, in, in a coalition, in a governing coalition, maybe with the Social Democrats or with the Green Party. Uh, but y- there will be a change because no matter who will success, uh, succeed Merkel, uh, it won't be as strong of a figure as, as Merkel was uh, on the international level. Uh, because, I mean, she was really, she knew how to pull the strings in these diplomatic and international negotiations. And th- those who might uh, follow her won't, won't have the kind of yeah, skill set. He is Konstantin Eckner, writer, broadcaster, contributor to The Times, The Spectator, and Der Spiegel. Konstantin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll go from a discussion of COVID-19 to a discussion of uh, health insurance and health care in America more generally when healthinsurancementors.com's C.S. Tucker joins us. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. 
Remember that debate, that final debate, uh, low one week ago. Seems like a lifetime, doesn't it? Here's what uh, Joe Biden had to say about health care and uh, how Obamacare would turn into Biden care. If you, in fact, do not have the wherewithal to be, if you qualify for Medicaid and you do not have the wherewithal in your state to get Medicaid, you automatically are enrolled, providing competition for insurance companies. That's what's going to happen. Secondly, we're going to make sure we reduce the premiums and reduce drug prices by making sure that there's competition that doesn't exist now by allowing the Medicare to negotiate drug prices with the insurance companies. Uh, He sure has a funny way of defining competition. Uh, Most uh, people don't define it as government-imposed price controls and rationing. But uh, I guess that's where I differ with the Democrat socialists. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by our friend C. Stephen Tucker, founder and principal broker for healthinsurancementors.com. There's nobody who knows more about health insurance than Mr. Tucker, who joins us now. Thanks, C.S. I wanted to um, get your take uh, from a policy perspective on what you've heard from uh, both Trump and Biden down the stretch as uh, Biden continues to try to um, uh, advance the flag of Biden care. Uh, and uh, he makes the assertion, of course, that uh, what President Trump is proposing and with the Supreme Court case that's pending uh, this this coming term is that uh, overturning Obamacare in toto, if that were to come to pass, would mean that people with pre-existing conditions would not get health insurance coverage. And President Trump then, by extension, is uh, proposing that uh, people with pre-existing conditions be uh, thrown off of their health insurance plans and unable to get coverage. All a bunch of poppycock. Uh, first of all, the crux of the Texas VHR case is predicated on one major issue, that the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, cannot survive without the existence of the individual mandate. By the time that case gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, earliest would be June or July of 2021, at the very earliest. Uh, And when that gets there, you will have almost three years of solid evidence that the law can survive without the existence of the individual mandate because the president zeroed out the individual mandate in the 2017 Jobs and Tax Cut Act. So the law has been surviving perfectly well without the existence of the individual mandate. So if they do anything at all, they will sever the individual mandate from the rest of the law that they did twice in the last Supreme Court session. And they've done many other times when large pieces of legislation, there are sections that are contested. So the ACA is not going anywhere anytime in the near future. That said, even if it were repealed by that uh, case, which I highly doubt it will happen, we still have in our state a functioning high-risk health insurance pool. Anyone can Google it. It's called the Illinois Comprehensive Health Insurance Plan. Most states dissolved their high-risk health insurance pools. Our state did not. So it still exists. So anybody in the state of Illinois, if the ACA was over, overturned, could go to the Illinois Comprehensive Health Insurance Plan and enroll. Currently, it only accepts Section 15 applicants, which are those who exhaust COBRA, but it could be easily adjusted to accept Section 7 applicants, which were people who were not HIPAA qualified prior to the ACA. As you know, in 25 years in this business, I have never been unable to offer anyone health insurance long before anyone ever heard of Barack Obama because HIPAA law, Section 2741 and 2742 of Public Law 104-191, guaranteed those coverage for pre-existing conditions, even in the individual marketplace. I also saw the pre-existing conditions is a, 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 an important point, so I'm glad you explained that. Additionally, what Trump has done to uh, improve Obamacare uh, 
uh, over his first four years, uh, particularly as it relates to families, uh, small businesses, the expansion of association health plans for uh, employers generally. Uh, speak to those uh, modifications, uh, arguably improvements over the last four years. Well, you have to use DuckDuckGo to find the good things the president has done. <laughs> yes. you, you cannot use Google. But if you use DuckDuckGo, you can Google some recent articles by the New York Post, which is currently uh, banned by the member of the Taliban, Jack. Uh, that's what he looked like the other day during testimony. It looked like a hostage video, did it not? Uh, it's pretty disturbing, but you could Google a recent article by the wonderful New York Post entitled 11 Things Trump Has Done to Fix Obamacare. And one of the remarkable things linked in that article is a wonderful report by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and Health and Human Services, which denotes that there have been 1,027 generic drugs approved in fiscal year 2017, more since then. These are historic numbers of generic drugs reducing the cost of things like insulin. Insulin used to be a tier three or four drug if you're using Novolog or Humalog, for example. Humalog's still tier four, but you can get it at GoodRx.com for about uh, $68 at Walgreens if you use GoodRx.com, which is a large PBM, pharmacy benefit manager. You don't even need insurance, it's just a coupon. But the first one, Novolog, is now a tier one drug, which means it's not subject to deductible on most health plans. So that's just one example. There are 1,027 other examples of generic drugs that have been, been developed and have saving people thousands of thousands of hours a year on prescription drugs. Yeah, so that's I, I just think, one example. And just, just on that point, too, the, the drug price inflation has been de minimis uh, over the last three years, too. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so against the backdrop of I wish President Trump would have mentioned that in the debate, I guess the backdrop of uh, Joe Biden uh, suggesting that the price controls is the way that we're going to control drug prices, which, of course, creates all sorts of externalities and does not ultimately reduce price inflation. It just creates shortages, which increase prices. That's how econ economics works. But um, this is this is an important point. So it's it's more competition in the system, more approval of generic drugs, legislation like right to try. And so uh, 1.5 percent to price inflation over three years in drug prices. That is remarkable. And by the way, this public option that uh, Mr. Biden speaks about is will very quickly be the only option. The private sector cannot compete with a public option because a public option will be able to tap into the U.S. Treasury at any time to solve the problem of deficits. We cannot do that in the private sector. So eventually, and I'm talking in probably less than a year, 18 months, if that happens, you're going to wipe out all private health insurance plans because they won't be able to compete. And then there's not going to be a public option. There's only going to be one option. Well, this is what they've been doing ever since they needed to water down Obamacare to pass it, right? I mean, really, ever since Hillary Clinton introduced single payer, which is trying to get through the back door what they couldn't get through the front door. And this, you know, public option and talking about con using words like competition makes it sound so innocuous when, in point of fact, this is just the backdoor government takeover they've always wanted. That's exactly right. And the evidence is how Medicare operates today. Medicare is able to outsource their billing and all these other functions that private health insurers have to use their resources to pay for. Medicare doesn't have to. So when you hear these erroneous statements like Medicare is more efficient than uh, private health insurance, so we should just expand Medicare to people 60 years of age like Biden wants to do. These are not fiscally possible options. They're fantasy options, but they sound good to those who have no idea what they're talking about. And so uh, the, 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 the connection here, because this is a point of contention over the last six months of the campaign, too, is whether Joe Biden ultimately, Biden care would kick 175 million people off their private health insurance, the answer is, yeah, it would.
100%, and it's 185 million people that have private-sponsored, employer-sponsored coverage, and there are millions more who have individual health insurance plans. All of that would be eliminated very quickly under the Biden proposals. Well, if Trump wins a second term, I'm nominating C. Stephen Tucker for his health care policy point person, at least spokesperson. Uh, no question about it. C.S. Tucker, founder and principal broker for healthinsurancementors.com. C.S., thanks as always for enlightening us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the show and uh, bouncing back to COVID-19 from our discussion of uh, health insurance policy with C.S. Tucker. Uh, Charlie Baker is the governor of Massachusetts. He uh, recently uh, had this to say about uh, kids in school. The kids in schools are not spreaders of COVID. I mean, there's no better example of that right now than the parochial schools in Massachusetts. They have 28,000 kids and 4,000 employees who have been back in person learning since the middle of August, and they have a handful of cases. So that's uh, coming up on three months, right? Governor Baker also added that uh, hundreds of thousands of public school students have also returned to the classroom under the hybrid model. There have only been about 150 to 160 COVID cases in Massachusetts in those classrooms or resulting from that interaction. So they believe if you're to believe contact tracing as effective sourcing, which seems to be somewhat in doubt. Uh, My home state governor Pritzker, uh, who is instituting the uh, only, as I understand it, uh, lockdown of in-person dining in restaurants and and bars around the country uh, as of the end of this week, at first said the basis was these are environments where transmission occurs based on contact tracing, then saying yesterday, contract tracing doesn't really tell us where the transmission occurs. It just sort of gives us a general sense of transmission along with the obviously positive cases, positive tests. Uh-huh. You don't, the, 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 trans, the contact tracing that was supposed to be such a feature of flattening, slowing, stopping is now to be discarded altogether. Okay. Uh, getting back to Governor Baker, talking about schools, both Catholic and, pri- and public, In short, real-life experience in the research shows that classrooms are not a major source of transmission. Oh, by the way, against that backdrop, the National Assessment of Educational Progress test scores came out on Wednesday. 37% of high school seniors are proficient or above in reading, only 24% in math, virtually unchanged from 2015. Those are uh, depressing enough. For the lowest performers, there was a decline in both subjects. So again, disproportionately the poor getting hit the hardest by these lockdown policies, which include distance learning rather than in-person learning. Does this make sense? Does this make sense, what we're doing? For more on that, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Lyndon Haviland. She's a distinguished scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. Dr. Haviland, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So why don't we just start with the schools, since, of course, this is where parents are most concerned, parents with kids are most concerned about their kids' education and, by extension, intellectual, social development, the academic record they're able to put together. I mean, with what Governor Baker is saying in Massachusetts, does that does that make sense that we're not still having kids in schools in so many big urban school districts? 
Well, I think every every state is different. Governor Baker has actually been fantastic on getting out ahead of the curve with COVID. And actually, his contact tracing, he was one of the first to really invest in extensive contact tracing. So I think it makes a lot of sense to follow the science, to look at the data. They're doing a great job in Massachusetts, and I love the statistics from both the parochial schools and the public schools. But that means that they are listening to the science, they're testing, they're following up when there are positive cases. So it makes a lot of sense. I mean, we as adults, we know that school is a really important place for children to develop and learn. And your point, I think, is also really important, which is that the hybrid model or, you know, doing school by remote learning isn't helping kids very much. Right. Uh, and so uh, these are, and, and this is not just uh, exclusive to Massachusetts, of course, as we know from some of the research, and we, we know this from the uh, Yale study at, uh, in daycare centers, 57,000 daycare centers across all 50 states, that uh, it's just very low transmission environment. So I, I mean, uh, you know, out of an abundance of caution, should we be out of an abundance of caution, no positive cases, or should we be out, out of an abundance of caution concerned about children's uh, mental health, and as I said at the outset, social and intellectual development. I think we should always be concerned with their, both their mental health and their physical health. I think in schools where they have indeed put in place policies for testing, for contact tracing, for appropriate uh, precautions and responding appropriately, I think it's great to have kids back in school. I have a nephew who's back in school. Um, at a university, they've had zero positive cases. And why? Because they have been doing aggressive testing, they're doing appropriate social distancing, and they're really following the best in public health recommendations. But for kids, this abrupt end of the school year last spring, followed by the uncertainty uh, that they perceive about the world, it is indeed causing children additional anxiety and stress. And social isolation, we know, is not great for their mental health. So what we really need to be thinking about is how do we help kids build a more resilient attitude towards the future? And how do we give them the skills necessary to thrive in the current situation? Uh, when we come back with um, Dr. Lyndon Havland, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, this uh, culture of safetyism that some have described and uh, with whom I agree. Dr. Lyndon Havland is a distinguished scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Lyndon Haviland. She is a distinguished scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. And Dr. Haviland, Jonathan Haidt, who is a social psychologist, probably know the name, founder of Heterodox Academy, a gentleman, an academic who describes himself as definitely center left. Uh, he was the co-author of this uh, book in the last couple of years called The Coddling of the American Mind. And in there, he talked about uh, three untruths that we're um, embracing as a culture, increasingly woven into American childhood and education. One, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Two, always trust your feelings. Three, life is a battle between good people and evil people. These three untruths the great untruths, as they're termed in the book, interferes with young people's social, emotional, and intellectual development. It makes it harder for them to become autonomous adults who 
who are able to navigate the road of life, Height and his co-author argue. Uh, do you agree with that? And if you do, uh, how does that, this culture of safetyism that they describe, how does that fit with the policy approach we're taking to COVID-19? Well, I confess I have not read uh, Jonathan's book, but what I would say is what we know right now is that, indeed, we are trying to follow the science to understand what is the best policy and what is the best approach in the midst of a pandemic to keep our kids safe and help them to grow and to thrive. What I would say is it's a really important opportunity to talk about how do we build the most resilient kids possible? How do we create the learning situations where they can have a positive self-image, where they can develop problems solving skills, or they'll learn to self-regulate their emotions, learn to be adaptable. I think the challenge for many um, parents and kids has been the move from the abrupt end of the semester last spring, and then the uncertainty and the inability to really understand what is the science of the pandemic as it has been shifting and as we've been learning about transmission rates and as we've been learning about what are the best policies. And frankly, when we've had a 50 state kind of experimentation where every governor is taking a different approach because we are lacking um, in a singular narrative about the pandemic, I think for kids building um, connections and empathy and resilience are the most important things we could be doing for our kids today. So with respect to resilience, I mean, it's an interesting concept. It's sort of, right, this is the whole sort of dichotomy between um, preparing the road for your kid or preparing your kid for the road, and there, that, right. that, that matters. And, and so I wonder, uh, are we, by protecting them from being resilient, we're, how do we engender resilience? Right. I think there are some very clear guides on how do we build resilience. I mean, as we all know, when you fall down, you have to stand up again, right? And so by helping kids problem solve and to, un- to set goals and measure progress against those goals and to understand that indeed they have the emotional wherewithal and the intellectual wherewithal to succeed is a really important thing. I think when we look at the classroom, You don't get every answer right every time, but what we want to do is help them build the skills necessary to unpack a problem and to respond appropriately. That's how we build resilience. Do you think it's helpful? I mean, you write in your piece uh, in The Hill about the fear and anxiety that is gripping a lot of America's children, certainly more so than in a normal year as a percentage. And I I wonder if uh, some of the suggestions, the way this is covered, which could lead one to believe that... um, somebody who is under the age of 21 is just as likely to uh, die or suffer serious illness as somebody over the age of 70, when, of course, we know that the data suggests uh, those two things are uh, wildly different. Those two cohorts are wildly different in terms of their experience with uh, COVID-19. I wonder if sort of the blurring of the distinctions, uh, if that helps uh, or if that creates anxiety where somebody say this is you, we're, we're, and, and it doesn't treat kids as sort of self-actualized beings or trying to get them to be self-actualized beings. Look, this is dangerous, um, but I want you to understand what the risk is here. And I want you to understand what the risk is for other people, because I want you to be considered of other people. I mean, you know, treat them as people who can process information and, and help them start to develop their ability to make risk assessments. 
Well, I think you're making a very important point. I think we need to give them information and then we need to help them get the tools necessary. I think, you know, when we talk about asking people to wear facial coverings and wear a mask, you can ask a young person to do that as well and explain why it's important and have them understand that they are protecting themselves and they are protecting others. And it's a really important, I think the other issue is we don't, as we are learning about the pandemic and as we're learning about COVID-19, we are also learning about what are the long-term impacts on our whole body, as well as on our mental health of exposure to COVID. I mean, so yes, indeed, many young people, if they are exposed to COVID, perhaps they get a mild case, but we don't know what the long-term impact is on their cardiovascular system, on their kind of respiratory system, and even on their brain. So I would say it's really important that we that we give young people information to make good decisions, help them understand the data, and we need to be consistent about that. And as adults, we also need to model good behavior. And what, uh, what, what would you suggest uh, uh, we understand or need to understand about the long-term impacts on mental health, intellectual development, socialization of being locked down, being in this uh, place we're at now in so many parts of the country for, say, the foreseeable future for the next for the second half of the school year, maybe into the next school year next fall? Right. So the long-term impact of that on young people can be quite devastating. Some of the best studies that we've seen say that this increased anxiety and this increase in stress will have a long tail, that it could last as long as nine years. So it's really important that we help nine years. That's the best studies that we've seen. So the question becomes, what can we do? Um, One is that we can help young people um, have a sense of hopefulness and optimism about the future. We can help them build skills around resilience. We can help them like see, have good and positive connections with their peers or even with their parents. You know, it is very important for young people to feel a sense of connectedness as opposed to social isolation. And what are the ways we can do that? You know, have a plan, have people, have young people reaching out to their peers via Zoom or social media, even a phone call, do positive things with their family, enjoy a family dinner, don't just sit with your device on the dinner table, have um, the parents think about what are the skills they can be building, and have young people see their parents also being hopeful and optimistic. She is Dr. Lyndon Haviland, Distinguished Scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. Dr. Haviland, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back. And to close out the show is picking up off our conversation with Dr. Haviland before the break. I wanted to say something about masks. But before that, you really have to see this just in terms of how serious we are supposed to take our um, technocratic betters in departments of public health around the country or mayor's offices or governor's mansions. Claire Posh, a senior official, the Oregon Health Authority, gave a COVID-19 update, hospitalization, deaths and the like. 
in full, I assume it's Halloween getup. I don't know. Maybe this is the outfit she normally wears. I mean, the irony that is lost on her. It's truly an example where irony is dead. Now, you're going to hear what she's saying, and I'll describe to you what she's wearing. But you really have to see it at Dan Prof Show. She gives this important public health information while dressed up in a red tie, a polka dot shirt, bright yellow pants, and a full face of clown makeup. I'm not kidding. As of today, there have been 38,160 cases of COVID-19 in Oregon, with 390 new cases being reported today. Sadly, we are also reporting three deaths today, bringing the statewide total for COVID-19-related deaths to 608. And then she squirted the camera with her flower and uh, had uh, Governor Brown squeeze her nose. Honestly, uh, we have the same thing in Chicago with the the mayor and the city's director of public health dressing up as Rona busters, making videos in terms of how to trick or treat Rona busters. I'm talking about capes and masks and the whole thing. Speaking of masks, our friend, Dr. Joseph Ladapo from UCLA, and just to respond to Haviland as well as to Novella from Yale, we spoke with yesterday on the mask issue. Ladapo, this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from Consider how the debate has evolved in the underlying scientific evidence. Several randomized trials of community or household masking have been completed. Most that we know of are still waiting for the Danish study to be somewhere uh, published somewhere. That's my parenthetical remark. But going back to Ladapa, most have shown that wearing a mask has little or no effect on the respiratory virus transmission. According to a review published earlier this year in the Emerging Infectious Diseases, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's journal. Almost overnight, the recommendations flipped from what Fauci had uh, recommended at in March, which is wearing a mask may make people feel a little better, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think it is. Almost overnight, the recommendations flip the reason, the risk of asymptomatic transmission. Health officials said mask mandates were now not only reasonable, but critical. This is a weak rationale, writes Dr. Ladapo, given that pre-symptomatic spread of respiratory virus isn't a novel phenomenon in public health. Asymptomatic cases of influenza occur in up to a third of the patients, according to a 2016 report in emerging infectious diseases. And even more patients had mild cases that never that are never diagnosed. Asymptomatic or mild cases appear to contribute more to COVID-19 transmission. But this happens in flu cases, too, that no one has called for mask mandates during flu season. The most reasonable conclusion from the available scientific evidence is that community mask mandates have at most a small effect on the course of the pandemic. But you wouldn't know that from watching cable news or sitting next to a mother being forced off an airplane because her small children aren't able to keep a mask on. As he says, the title of his piece, A Distraction from the Pandemic Reality. That's what they are. COVID-19 Prevention Theater. And it will continue past November 3rd. This is Dan Prof. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the show. Please join us again tomorrow to close out the week. This is the Dan Prof. Show.